welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Greetings, citizens. Welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Decay, and this is the interview segment. Today, we're going to chat about one of the most critical parts of building online games, gaming backends. It's one of the most important choices a game developer can make. Switching costs can get very high. And from the venture side is the classic infrastructure play that mimics the SaaS-based investing of the tech world. The lingo, if anybody is wondering, is stated as BAS, backends as a service. Um, And gaming backends can make all the difference between an exceptionally smooth scaling and the rickety scrape-together growth if you're not prepared. Joining me today is Eden Chen, the founder of Pragma, a back-end gaming engine geared specifically towards multiplayer games. They are backed by investors like Greylock, Upfront Ventures, and Insight Venture Partners. Welcome to the podcast, Eden. Thanks for having me. Woo! Um, and uh, I know it's been a while since I last saw you. I caught you at the Friends of... Met you and caught you at the Friends of Bitcraft event in Santa Monica. That's right. This summer. Yes, so. rooftop uh, barbecues with Moritz. I know. And then he moved. So now there's no more Santa Monica. Um, Malibu yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's leveled up in life. Gone further west. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we uh, you know, continue on to talk about the, you know, the meat of what we're going to discuss today, I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself and you know, intro yourself to the audience and tell us about your background in games and, and how you came to found Pragma. Yeah, so always been a, a gamer since a very young age. Uh, for a lot of people, that means that I was socially awkward when I was uh, young, and so uh, a lot of the ways that I made friends is tracks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> playing uh, playing games. Uh, my my parents actually didn't let me get like the consoles uh, because I've you know Asian parents that are like video games are the death of my children. So uh, I always played computer games and you know hid that very well until. Uh, I started playing competitively, uh, and that was StarCraft and into WarCraft 3, and so uh, came joined a pro team and, you know, just like total nightmare, nightmare scenario for my parents. Uh, and then I, I uh, from there, went from there to just kind of like spending kind of uh, time apart from games. I did hedge fund trading for a little while uh, and then started a, a company that was working really closely with Snap on uh, VR, AR uh, work, and then um, mm. started Pragma about uh, three years ago uh, with Chris. Awesome. Yeah, well, here's the strategy. I, you have to have a one white parent. I had a white mom <laughs> and an Asian dad, and I got all the gaming consoles. So it worked out. Oh, <laughs> man, yeah, that's uh, Keep that in mind, keep that in mind. <laughs> nice. Yeah, two Asian parents, and then uh, you will not get one console. Oh <laughs> yeah, like I, I still to this day like struggle. I, I play. Uh, I try to keep some separation between work and and uh, and gaming, and so I, I play on console nowadays. But I'm like just eternally going to be bad at like using the controller to some extent. I play with the same pro team I played with in high school, but mm. we just play like console FPS now. Um, and it's just like I just like don't have the muscle because I didn't grow up playing. No, it, it's it's super true, and even if you do have the muscle, it expires anyway. So um, it's a you got a very narrow window to cash in on yeah, your yeah, uh, and I'm, yeah, and I'm old too, yeah, so, <laughs> older for a game. <laughs> nice. Okay, so it sounds so you basically moved on to found Pragma. And how long have you been having? How long have you been doing that? And you know what made you interested in building a, a backend versus a, a gaming project itself? Yeah, so we started in uh, like end of 2019, early 2020. Uh, the so Chris, my co-founder, he had started a edtech game right before this. Uh, they ended up getting acquired by Phoenix Labs, mm. um, uh, you know, who's been in the news recently. Uh, but they so he stayed over there for a little bit, helped scale Dauntless, and then we we had talked about working on a game. Uh, so it was definitely a serious consideration. Uh, both of us are just you know been friends for a long time, super passionate about games. I had seen uh, several studios that I'd been talking to at the time that had asked us 
both of us particularly about backends. That's both of us are backend engineers uh, by trade. And once they started asking us about that, um, one of them had just said, "Hey, if you build us a backend, we'll just kind of let you guys take the tech and." make a company out of it. And so there was some interest around that in terms of just there was demand coming in from us around lots of people that asked us, you know, can you build us a backend? And so I started doing a lot of like digging on the history of backends. And um, there, there were lots of them out there. There was, you know, PlayFab and GameSparks. And yeah, there's probably a dozen other ones that had started sort of in the 2010 to 2015 period. So a lot of it, me was as a student trying to learn like, okay, why did, why are people still looking for backends if, these companies have already been started. Like, isn't this problem already kind of solved? And uh, what I kind of learned from a lot of these studios is that, like, if you're making a sort of cross-platform, I call it like the aspirations of a AAA game, these services tend to be extremely uh, unique, uh, particularly like player data and matchmaking. Like, mm-hmm. if you just think about, um, you know, it's just something like a battle pass. And if you even look at like one battle pass, like the Fortnite battle pass. The evolution of that battle pass is that it's been tuned so many times that sure. when you're looking at like a PlayFab or GameSparks and you're an experienced person that's built these systems before, it becomes very difficult to rely on a black box because those systems are inherently part of the game design. Uh, and not, not being able to tune those is highly restrictive for a game that wants to sort of be this aspirational AAA game. So once we started seeing that, trend play out with uh, a lot of studios coming to us and saying, hey, can you look at this or help us solve this problem? We were like, oh, maybe there's like the different way to think about building these systems that's not the way that it had been done in the past. So that that, that was sort of the, the beginning of us like exploring it. And then, um, you know, we found like sort of three design partners right outside of the gate. And um, then we sort of just went down the path of building this this, this, this company. So we, we stuck with those three same studios for our first couple of years. And then uh, last year we started kind of broadening out more. Awesome. That's such a cool story. I think like even, it sounds like you like started with the game, but then you discovered that there was this tooling problem. You know, you're, you're reminding me of the Slack story, of course. Um, you know, you're building a tool to help you build games and then that tool is, in itself becomes the business. And, you know, just the other day we had an NFX investor um, come and talk at Stanford and we talked about sort of like the four aspects of competitive advantage, um, you know, network effects, brand scale, and then the embedding problem. Embedding is like what Oracle does. It like just like hitches itself into an organization right. and then like it never lets go. Right. And so right. I think backends are super fascinating because you're saying that, you know, like, hey, there's all these problems that maybe um, GameSparks or PlayFab didn't solve, but these games are kind of stuck on this technology. So I'd love to um, like, you know, later on talk about like, you know, what makes Pragma different from maybe some of the backends of, of of old. But before we kind of get down there, let's just maybe, you know, for the for the noobs in the room, you know, let's talk about like gaming backends and mm-hmm. what they are and the services yeah. that they typically provide. You know, how would you describe a gaming backend to like somebody who has no idea what that is? Yeah, I guess like historically speaking in the games industry, there were like a lot of things that were stored on clients um, that like be like the hardware device that you're playing on. Um, or just like, you know, the, the, everything was run sort of on the client itself. And as time uh, passed on and there was more competitive games and there was um, things that needed to be validated in some way because there was dollars attached to it, uh, a lot of this stuff needed to start moving to servers. It's also just like easier to update things from a server than it is like having a client update. So like the easiest way to think about backend is like something that's interacting with servers and databases the, the suite of services that we typically think about are things like accounts and login, it's mm. social features, um, it's player data. Player data is, uh, and game data are, are pretty broad terms, but that can include things like progression, um, your monetization, your battle pass, um, and then uh, you know it, it go, it class crafting. It, the list kind of goes on and on. It's a very broad-based group of things, but it's effectively the metagame um, inside of uh, a game. Uh, and then the, the last area is sort of matchmaking, uh, which is like, how do you get players in the same room together? So it's, it's a very broad um, sort of suite of services, but uh, namely, it's not things that live on the client. Like that's the actual networking itself, like what Unreal and Unity are doing, the physics, the rendering. Uh, those things are not like part of effectively the back end. Got it. Okay, so if I am if I'm a player, right, whatever, like basically all commerce, Login accounts, maybe 
the matchmaking, maybe like the social systems. Um, those are things that are included in a back end, right? Yeah. And I say I think the confusing thing is that um the same language can be used for things that used to live on the client, um, mm. which is why I tried to make that distinguish uh, distinguish that earlier. In other words, like there are purchases that in the past um, may have been an in-game purchase that may have been on a client. And that's like usually when things, you, you know, you might be playing um, a single player hyper casual game where the cheating yourself doesn't make any sense. Like the points that you get, you're, you're just like sort of cheating yourself out of the game. It's when games get competitive and when there's real money exchanged where it's really important to have some security and that security typically happens in sort of the validation of the half set of server. So like, that's where like, um, in the past, you might have lots of things that looked the same, whether it be even like client-based matchmaking. Mm-hmm. For example, back in the day with like um, Blizzard, um, there was all this lobby-based scrolling where you would go and you would you know go and your user map setting games and you would scroll down and find like the three v three game and just trying to join it. Mm. Uh, that's a client-based. There's no server that's sort of acting as mm. the sort of middleman between the 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 two players. There's that's just like some maybe peer-to-peer hosting or that's a client-based sort of hosted matchmaker and so that's where the terms can get sort of confusing where there's not necessarily a backend that's associated sometimes with a similar feature set or something that looks similar it's just when a game becomes like cross-platform for example you can't really have things live on a client anymore because if you log on xbox and then you log on your computer some the server needs yeah, to actually like, sync those two things together what are you going to do yeah yeah, yeah oh. that's right got it got it got it and so then so you're providing these like all this this huge suite of services. It might be security, commerce, matchmaking, social systems. You know, when have you seen in the past as a developer that might be wanting to make a cross-platform game choose and commit to their backend choice? You know, like where in the development cycle would I decide? Oh, I'm going to go with PlayFab or I'm going to go with Photon. Yeah, I mean, it's typically fairly early in the development cycle, um, and. Uh, the, the reason why is because once you start playtesting, or if you want to run real, by real playtest, I mean like you're actually going through a real matchmaking loop. And that's not, like sometimes people test locally, um, like in the same office on a VPN, and, and you can kind of just play that way. But once you start doing any, any time to outside playtest, particularly even with like remote you know, work, you can't really just do the same things that you used to do. When you start mm-hmm. getting in those real motions, that's typically when people start looking to sign up with the backend. So it's like when you want to do like the first two things that we typically people see people do is like, and maybe like an account integration with like a steam or Epic. Um, and then like a, a, a sort of game loop, um, or a matchmaking sort of loop. Um, and that's just so you can start actually play testing. Um, so like the earliest phase of game development might be like, you know, you're doing the concept art, you're doing like very, very early kind of like, um, game design. And then the next step might be like, even at the most, like, sort of grayscale kind of art, you might start wanting to start testing some of these mechanics with like either a small group of players, even if it's like internal testing or testing with some friends. So that's like the first step. Um, Some people I'd say might do uh, some of that work early themselves. Like they might create, you know, go into AWS and start like, you know, building some very light platform work so that they can start facilitating some of this themselves. And then they might push the platform decision or the backend decision until you know, like six months before launch or whatnot. And that's usually like a pretty bad idea. And I could, I could talk about why, but, um, but a lot of studios will do that too as well. They'll sort of like put together something janky just so they can like test it and then like kind of punt the decision until later. Got it. And I think the idea of punting it until later is sometimes people don't know exactly what they need out of in terms of the services that their backend might provide, right? So maybe let's just say like, I don't know whether or not I'm going to have PVP yet. I haven't decided that. So I don't know if I need matchmaking. So I'm just going to hold off on this decision. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, a lot of times, like when you're trying to find the fun, you don't, you don't want to make that many decisions and you don't, uh, you know, it's like, it all makes sense. It's rational. It's just kind of like one of those things where like, um, typically where we see some studios get in trouble is when they start baking a lot of their player data into the client um, because it's it's easier and it's what people have done for a long time. Um, and then when they actually choose a backend, they have to sort of redo a lot of that work um, in terms of moving that all over to like a, a completely different architecture. So that's where, and, and then typically their, their launch deadlines don't really adjust to 
account for the fact that they have to do a lot of that rework. So they may be like, oh, we have six months until we're launching. And um, you know, all this stuff has been baked into the client and they and they can't ship that way. They have to move all that to a server. Um, and then they make that decision then, but then it's like crazy crunch to try to move all that and change all that. And that's where you see some some kind of <laughs> issues when it's not sort of like built into the actual like development plan. Got it. Fascinating. Yeah. So it's so it sounds like the best course of action, but you know, best practice would be to sort of commit to your to your backend earlier in your dev cycle, maybe around the time that you start doing playtesting. Um, that's right. Oh, yeah. And so in that's in that regard, it sounds like playtesting is like the critical step, right? You know, it's not commerce. It's less about telemetry, but it's more about playtesting. And well, I guess my point there was that that's typically when the developer starts saying, "I need this." Um, uh, some of the more complex areas for like live, ser- at least live service games, are around content. Um, and that, I mean, my belief uh, is that you know that player data you really want to to really think about very early on mm-hmm. uh, because oh, there's things like data versioning that get very complicated when you like let, a lot of people launch a game and they haven't even thought about how they are going to version, you know, X1, X2, X3. And therefore they have all these like weird database conflicts and things when they go live and the game starts crashing because of like, you'll see these errors, like, you know, you know, wrong database version or something like that. The game will crash. And then, you know, things like that start to happen because, um, there's not a lot of like pre-planning. So that's around more of like the player data side, but from a game developer standpoint, the way that they think about it is sort of like, I have a need, uh, which is I need to start play testing. I don't want to right. basically roll all this technology myself, so I'll, I'll use a third party. And then typically, if we would meet with the studio at that point, we might also start making suggestions on like, how are you, th- how are you guys thinking about progression or how are you guys thinking about your quests or your crafting or your inventory or skins? Or It depends on the game, but we start you know, asking those questions to start getting them to think about doing that earlier. Sure, sure. Um, and so I'd love to dive actually a little bit deeper into like the three big, some of the three big services that you mentioned in, in a backend, right? That being matchmaking, the commerce side, and then maybe the player data, the telemetry setup. Um, you know, on the matchmaking side, you know, what makes a good like matchmaking program? Um, I have personally worked on a few multiplayer competitive games, Overwatch and Hearthstone being two yep. of them. And on the League of Legends side, the matchmaking is just bad because I'm not my play, my teammates are bad, so <laughs> I'm <laughs> uh, totally, totally. <laughs> so I mean, I'm, just, I'm obviously just kidding there. Um, well, yeah. The I'm funny bad. thing is, well, everybody's gonna <laughs> complain. The thing is, everybody complains about matchmaking. Like that's that's the like you know joke. Obviously, there it's like you know it kind of doesn't really matter how good your matchmaker is. Everyone complains right, uh, right. about the matchmaking. Uh, I I mean I think fundamentally speaking, I think matchmaking and game design are kind of inextricably linked in that like if you look at like a you know i guess what we would i i would consider like a a good matchmaker like a league even though you were making the joke um the uh you know there's a lot of decisions that were made uh on on games like that um even like with dota around like you know banning players where that the the whole matchmaking process is actually part of the fun of playing the game Mm. um in, in in league that you can select you know multiple you know, uh, roles, for example, if you're, if you want to play mid or, and you want to play like a backup as a support or something like that, there, that's, uh, added to the whole, whole complexity of the matchmaker, which means like part of the game design is allowing people to make bands and make alternate selections for their, um, you know, for their role. And even the team composition is you know, part of like the game itself, like in some, you know, if you're like a really good team, you could lose the game before you even start playing if you have a bad team composition. So, so much of that is like really important to the matchmaker. So, I guess I'd say a few things to answer the beginning part of your question. What's important to matchmaker? One, I think, is just like scale is is one thing that a lot of people think about because typically when games don't scale, they fail in, in the login or they fail in the matchmaker. Um, and so, you know, if if you can't get into a game. Um, that's a huge problem. <laughs> so, and matchmakers are kind of like infamous for not being able to scale. Um, so I'd say like, first thing is like, sort of like, are you stress testing your matchmaker? Are you load testing? Um, you know, do you have a matchmaker that, that, that can actually scale? And, you know, it's so hard with games because 
it's very difficult to predict, you know, especially like on a launch, like, you know, how many players are going to get and whatnot. But, but that, that's one aspect. I think the second one is much more of a broad statement and it's uh, one that's tied into why we started Pragma. And uh, that's uh, a matchmaker needs to be flexible enough for you to tune the matchmaker to uh, and make it evolve uh, as you learn new things about your players, as you learn new things about the game, and as the game evolves over time, particularly in a live service game. Um, and that's, I think, our insight was like, particularly with matchmaking, um, folks that have built live service games for a long time, they really want to own the game loop. Um, when you when you sort of lose access to to making those changes, you really lose a part of the a fundamental part of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, a really good matchmaker is one that's flexible enough to allow you to to make the changes that you need to make. Whether that be like, like I, I just saw like Apex, maybe it was two or yeah. three weeks ago. They completely they're getting rewrote. shit on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, like that, that's going to happen. Like anytime you make changes, everyone's going to complain. But I mean, the point is that even after you might have made a mistake, you have to be able to adjust that based off of the, you know, maybe some of that feedback is, is inevitable because again, everyone's going to complain, but you have to be able to evolve that very, very quickly, um, and, mm. and make changes. So it's, it's one of those like never ending, there's no perfect matchmaker, I'd say, because it's something that needs to constantly evolve, but the systems that you have need to allow you to even make those changes. And that's like fundamental to having a good matchmaker. <laughs> Sure, sure. And then for the, some of the biggest online games that we know of, right, and Apex and Overwatch, Hearthstone, right, um, are these basically using backends that they built in-house in terms of their matchmaking? Or yeah, are... Okay, got it. Yeah, almost all of the biggest games are um, in-house games. So Chris worked on the League of Legends. My, my co-founder worked on the League of Legends matchmaker. I think that was, you know, at any given time, 20, 30, 40 people and uh, they were working on it for you know six, seven, eight. Yeah, I mean, it's forever, basically, right? It's not, that's not like that team gets any smaller. <laughs> it's just it continues going, and they continue making changes and tweaks. But um, you know, that's a team that I think started actually as the player behavior team at Riot um, because they're and that was like, how do we address toxicity? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what they realized is that the only way that you really can address toxicity is actually like incorporating those choices inside of the game itself inside of how you match into a game um, in, in terms of how you uh, get positions for, and I think like part of the learning there was like, you'd be pissed off at your teammates in the beginning if you got a position that they wanted or something like that. It would, you know, it's like a lot of that has to do with like how you enter a game. Um, and so uh, that's how it started. And then, uh, but, but yeah, the, these teams end up being very, very big and they're long lived in many cases. Got it. So before I ask you on the existential question of build or buy, because um, it sounds like you know there's some major in-house requirements and and you know staffing and overhead for for building um, a matchmaking system. Just want to t- touch back on the on the commerce and, and and telemetry. You know, yeah. I think something that I've always been super curious about is do. A, do like all gaming backends come with monetization tool assistance, um, like stuff like virtual goods or analytics or currency management um, to manage maybe even like uh, currencies across different regions. And then how does the actual point of sale operator, so someone like a Steam or an Xbox or a Sony, like actually like play a role in this dynamic? Yeah, so um, there's, yeah, this is such like a complex topic. Um the, the whole monetization as a whole, I'd say the it's it's very nuanced into which backends do what because everyone can sort of again like I mentioned before anyone can say there's a matchmaker um, and but it could be a client based matchmaker anyone could say there's player data but that could also be client based but there so in terms of I think there's a whole swath of different sort of monetization type products out there um, some are um, you know, much more complex and some are very simple. The most simple like database is just like a key value store. Um, and that's just like, you can, you put stuff in a database and take it out. And that's like your, your most, most, most basic, uh, sort of, uh, backend. It's just database. Um, then there's, uh, ones that are going to do a lot, uh, more, you know, a lot, a lot of different things. So for example, if today uh, you purchase something on Steam or Epic or Xbox or PlayStation, those people act as the actual payment facilitator. So they they take the 
um, you know, the dollars in. And then the backend itself is going to handle the uh, entitlement of the item. Um, so Steam will communicate with the backend and say, hey, this person has purchased this item. And then that entitlement uh, is a, yeah, a cross-platform entitlement. So that might have to crap in across like their PC, um, their Xbox account, um, et cetera. So th- that's that's sort of like the the base layer ID that deals with um, the, the actual fulfillment itself. So at the most base level on the monetization side, it's like players purchase things um, on PlayStation and then the, uh, the, the actual backend entitles it. Where it gets more complicated is that's just like the actual real money exchange. And typically um, in most games, what, what people do is the, the real money exchange just turns into some in-game currency. Um, and then the in-game currency is typically the, the complex part of what the backend needs to deal with. Um, because once you have the in-game currency, then that can be used to buy more items inside of the actual game, which is what the backend's dealing with, and then dealing with how to, to do the crafting and the bundles and the discounting and all that. And so that that's part of the so like so like if you think about like an apex, you might purchase something that gives you some kind of gold apex currency. Um, but once that currency lives inside of the game, then that's all the backend's like responsibility to handle all the rest of that post like platform purchase, I guess. So all the, all the actual like platforms are just handling like sort of the real money exchange, but the backends have to handle all like the complexity that happens afterwards. Got it. Got it. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So it's like, I'm in my mind and picturing someone's just like Sony and Xbox and steam are basically just like couriers that like run to your backend with a letter that says, you know, bill paid, $20, $20, give him his 200 gold, and then it's off to the races to the on the back end to basically say, okay, now Bill has 200 gold. Where is he sinking that in our system? And, you know, how do we surface him, the kind of offers that he wants to have? So even that kind of like shop personalization, that would be handled on the back end side. That's right. Yeah, offers, bundles, um, you know, there's dynamic bundling, which is like if you've purchased one item in the bundle, how do you adjust the pricing to, to take into account the fact that that user's you know, already has one item in the bundle because they don't want to buy double purchase, you know, uh, something like that. There's all sorts of complexity uh, uh, there as well. And and then you have to deal with things like if the player asks for a refund on the platform, how do you deal with that? What if they've spent their money already? Um, there's just all sorts of things. And a lot of that is just like up to the developer also to decide like how they want to treat those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, it also feels bad. Let's say you ask for a refund, but you've already bought an item like, you claw back the item, purchase, purchase. Like, there's all sorts of decisions that need to happen there. Super fun. Um, and so then, I guess this is maybe this is a little bit tangential, but you know, we just talked about Xbox and Sony and Steam, right? Those are some of the big, you know, platform and hardware providers, as well as you know. But there are other, you know, ways to link into tech, right? Like, you know, MSoft owns PlayFab. Um, you know, I, I think Google owns Firebase, right? What's MSoft? The, um, Oh, sorry. It's it's it's, it's I, I pick up MSoft from the Activision Blizzard lingo. Oh, okay, um, <laughs> I was like, what's MSoft? Oh, Microsoft. Microsoft yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's just so we always abbreviated the tickers. So like, I just started. We just started saying that. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, so what are the pros and cons of maybe picking a backend that's affiliated with like a larger scale server, like you know, within Xbox, right? Like, is it is, is there some advantage, right? If you know, I just told that analogy of the courier running with the letter that says, I, you know, Bill paid $200, give him his 200 gold. Is that faster if it's on PlayFab and this is an Xbox game and he made the store on Xbox, you know, on the Xbox store? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, there's not really in my mind like a pro or a con. Um, I think it really just has to do with the feature set that uh, a studio really wants and that, um, you know, PlayFab and Xbox, they have very distinct teams like the folks that are working on xbox are not uh the same folks that are working on playfab um and there's no real advantage and and i think it would do a a disservice to xbox developers if they gave special preference to you know developers that were only using Mm. playfab versus um, people that were building in-house or using pragma or whatever else so i I don't think i think it's intentionally sort of separated there's no real pro or con to any, I guess, kind of first-party systems. The ones I can think about are Steamworks is another one. That Steam, it's sort of like Steam's uh, in-house, uh, you know, s- set of services that deal with some of this. Uh, PlayFab's the sort of Microsoft version. Amazon used to have GameSparks, but they deprecated that. 
Um, but th- those are the two ones I could think of. But there's no real advantage, I'd say, outside of just like the product itself, I'd say. Got it. Got it. Okay. And even that's true, even in the, you know, telemetry setup as well. You know, I remember at the India studio that I worked at, we basically had a PlayFab plus Snowflake setup, right? So this is, again, me potentially butchering this process, but PlayFab yeah. seemingly collected the data. They sent That's it to right. Snowflake, the warehouse. And then we used stuff like Tableau to surface that data on the front end to like an, an analyst or something like that. Yeah, um, I mean... That's exactly right, and that that's exactly how we would that. treat it. Yes. Yeah, we we would treat it the same <laughs> as well. In that, like, y- you don't really want to get in the business of trying to compete with Snowflake or Datadog or um, some of these services. Like, mm. what you want to do is make sure that uh, as a backend, you're collecting data and you're packaging it well, and then you're passing it to the provider in a simple way. Um, and that provider could be Snowflake, that could be Datadog. There's there's like multiple levels of analytics and telemetry. There's like sort of the live metrics data, which is about like how many players are currently playing my game, um, you know how many crashes are there. It's the things that you want to know about uh, the live health of your your game. Um, and there's lots of standards for that, like open telemetry and different things like that. Um, then there's the sort of um, metrics that you might want to be able to query at any point, and that's like your your data your data warehouses like Snowflake, where you might want to say like, um, you know, what's the balance of this gun and like. You know, are people winning with this gun or that gun? And you want to, that, that's a lot more about like being able to query and um, ask questions uh, about what's happening. Um, is there a character that's winning way more than another character and those kinds of questions? And so does the backend provider and the developer work together in tandem to establish some of the criteria that I may want to eventually query? Or is there a standard off the shelf kind of boilerplate metrics, right? Like, yep, we're going to give you DAO. Yeah, I, there, on the metric side, there are definitely sort of standards like concurrent users and um, your crashes and and your, your so your health telemetry is definitely something that's more standardized. It's more the the data warehousing side that's not standardized, and I don't think that's really. I mean, I think that is never going to change. And that like game teams always need to define what's important to them and what they want to query and what they want to store. Um, and uh, even for us, a lot of it is about helping teams ask the right questions and helping them make sure that they have a good data pipeline, not necessarily saying like, hey, Pragma off the shelf is going to give you, because a lot of people are like, oh, do you have analytics? And the question is like, I guess like, yes, but it's like, what does that mean? What does that actually mean? Does it, what does like, that mean, mean for that, you and your team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that you, you still need a team that's going to go out and write a lot of, you know, do do the work in terms of actually capturing the information that's important to you because the important the information that's important to you versus someone else is fairly different. But the things that can be helpful are like um, actually getting that getting those uh, getting that data over to the data providers is something that isn't that trivial sometimes, and that sometimes collecting that data can take time. And so that's what we what we really do is really just like collect and package data so that the provider can actually read from that in a in a fast and efficient way. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I think the asking the right questions part is also so critical. I had the wonderful honor of discovering that some of the DAOs of Blizzard's games are defined differently. So, like, in one game, a DAO is someone who hits play. In another game, a DAO is somebody who sits in the menu for 30 seconds. So, (laughs) asking those right questions, I think, is so important because it has super big implications, especially if you, you know, if you make it past launch and your game becomes a hit, like, then you're doing all these live ops situations and you're trying to, your your PM teams are asking you all these questions and you're like, yeah, but like the data, like, so. um, Totally. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Um, And so I guess that brings me to the question, right? Like, it sounds like, you know, a backend should really be a partner to a game development studio. And I think in that regard, you know, I would love for you to sell me on like, you know, why should should I buy this service? You know, why should I get a PlayFab or get a Photon or get a Pragma versus building it all for myself in-house? If I need so many custom tools and I need everything to be so specific to me, why would I not just build it myself? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll quickly sort of delineate um, a group of services from another group of services. So uh, there are g- services that tend to be more generic. It doesn't mean that they're less complex, but it just means that um, they can be used by a broad range of uh, studios. So one example of that would be like the account system. So like accounts are basically like 
the the guys who basically link up with Steam and Epic and Xbox and PlayStation and um, iOS and Play Store and everybody, and then sort of like create that sort of ID, that player ID that can basically facilitate logins across all those different platforms. Um, so no matter what game you're working on, um, you're going to have like a pretty generic account system that works across all those different uh, providers. And the work that you're doing is also just like just like creating. Um, facilities to interact with um, each of those providers. It can get extremely complex when you start getting into cross-progression, cross-social, and how those work across different platforms, et cetera. So I'm not saying that those are easy services, but they're more generic. Um, the player data systems and the matchmaking are hyper... Uh, uh, they're both complex and they tend to be unique per game. And so... I think those are the ones that are probably addressing your what what you mentioned in terms of just like, hey, if these things are going to be pretty different per the game that I'm writing, why not just sort of like build it on my own mm-hmm. um, versus like using a third party? So I, I think it kind of depends. So like, I think like PlayFab, for example, if you're if you're just sort of like building an account system, PlayFab is going to be sort of it's going to be amazing for that. Uh, they've done it for a long time. Uh, a lot of people use uh, PlayFab's account system; works great for them. Um, and, and that's that. But when you start getting in, into the more, I'd say like extends like the need to extend out services like matchmaking and player data, that's where um, these sort of black box SaaS providers tend to to, to hit their limitations. Um, and uh, that's kind of how we tailor made our uh, our services to address more of the the guys that need to tune. Um, the like the player data and matchmaking services. So uh, again, like I think part of the rational. So you have like sort of three choices. You have sort of the play fabs of the world are going to be more black box oriented, off the shelf, very easy to get started, easy to use. You have sort of like build it myself, which is like I got to roll everything from the beginning and build it myself. And then you have someone like us who's like we're gonna you know try to solve those problems, but also give you the ability to sort of like extend out and customize the actual things because we don't think those services are really able to be generic. Um, or not even generic. They're not able to. They, they're needing real tuning uh, to make them uh, work the way that you, they want to work. So one is like the actual feature itself in terms of why you would want to use a third party versus build it yourself. And that's like um, you know when you're looking at like a player data system. There's all these things that you don't want to deal with, like data versioning, database migrations in a live environment. That's like if you rebalance your economy, you rebalance an axe because it's um, it's it's imbalanced. It could ruin. The game for a period of time. You don't want to do a client patch. You want to actually have a server ability to sort of update that axe live. But then if you do that and your systems don't have the ability to do database migrations, there's no data versioning, you start to deal with all these conflicts, your game starts to crash, etc. So these are things that are that are generic problems within highly customized areas. So I think I, people can go down the path and think like the, the, the feature itself might be relatively simple to build, but it's not just the feature itself, but all the things around it that you have to worry about, um, like the data versioning stuff that I mentioned. Uh, the other part of it is also like, even after you've built all your features, you have to actually operate those features live globally. Um, and that's uh, 24-7, lights on all the time. Uh, someone needs to be monitoring those servers. Um, you know, For a big game team that has three, 400 people that are dealing with live, serv- live operations and um, monitoring the graphs and doing all that kind of stuff, that's feasible, but if you're getting started and you're, you know, having to put a 10, 20 person team on building out your player data systems, your matchmaking, your accounts, all these services, that's one thing. And then you have to staff the whole live operations team to actually like manage it long term. So it's just a question of just like time, risk, uh, you know, cost to and to hire the team. And so th- those are the questions that I think game teams need to ask. Um, you know, in some cases, it does make sense for a team to to build that in house. I think the our bent is actually like we we really think games game teams really do need a lot of pl- platform expertise in house, even if they're using Pragma. That's always been our our push uh, to game teams. We are not trying to say we're going to solve all your problems, and uh, I think it's unrealistic uh, to assume if you want to ship these complex cross platform live service games that we could solve every problem for you. Um, what's much more realistic is to say. We can maybe solve 80, 90% of your problems. And then that last 10, 20%, you hire in-house and have some expertise there. So that's the the sort of the trade-offs that that folks are thinking about. Got it. Got it. So obviously feature complexity, 
in-house hiring, you know, paying, I don't have to pay my backend infra engineer. I pay you guys a fee, maybe potentially reduce time to market since I'm not building and building and building all these backend tools and get my game out faster. Um, you know, I don't have to do any kind of like live server management. Um, so those are some of the, some of yeah. the summaries. Well, I say the, the, the long, long-term dream for us is that most studios, they sort of get uh, they just get to building the core services, the core services being all the things that we've talked about. You know, can I log in? Can I, you know, get into a game? Those kinds of things. But they never really get into like the really interesting platform metagame features, which are just like much more asking, like, how do these social features actually like encourage people to play my game more? Um, like whether that be guild and clan management, whether that be like um, how you interact with your friends. Um, whether that be even just the matchmaker being something that's a, a, a good matchmaker for your game. Um, and that's where I think like most studios, even the ones that have large teams, they'll hit this sort of cap where they're still whack a mole like platform problems all the time, or they'll start working on their next game. And they'll never really get to the point where they're working on these really interesting social features. So for us, it's kind of like, yes, like our hope is that, of course, like we can save you money, save you time. And like de-risk your launch and things like that. Like that's just the core of services. But the long term is sort of like we want to actually start working on services that game teams never get to work on. And that's just like how do you make these metagame systems like actually make your game like more social, more fun, like give you higher retention. And those those kinds of things are really what's interesting. Like we're still working on the core services, so we're not there yet. But that's that's sort of the dream. Got it. And I think this is like a perfect segue to actually just, you know, shift over and talk, you know, m- about Pragma's kind of value proposition. You know, you guys are a new entrant into the back end space. You know, I think your seed round debuted in like 2020. And I think you recently raised a B round of like 20 million or so in October. Um, and so in the light of that, what we've discussed so far, you know, how is Pragma different than the current incumbents? Like you mentioned that there's like these three pillars. You can take your Playfab, pretty inflexible, good at doing the old stuff. You could build it in-house. You could choose us. You know, so, you know, how are you guys built to scale with the game studios that you guys on board or, you know, provide that kind of custom flexibility? Yeah, like we've, we've tried to focus on a particular persona as a good startup does in terms of just like, trying to identify exactly like who is our who is our customer and like what does that mean and for us this sort of like double a to triple a sort of live cross platform live service game like building that match based game for the most part is sort of like our sort of icp initial customer profile and that like we're we're focused on this type of persona and that requires a whole different set of services that uh, than like a off the shelf play fab that's really gearing much more towards a mass audience does like all of our stuff is like single tenant, so there's no noisy neighbor issue where like if one game takes off, it just like knocks down the whole service. It's like every um, every kind of I love uh, that noisy that tenant. I've never yeah, heard just, that before. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so like everything is sort of like built for the one studio, um, and each one of those studios is fairly unique in how they're set up. They might have different dev environments, staging environments. Um, there's some of them have like designer shards where they can use to really like. Uh, for their designers to kind of play around with and engineering shards where they're dealing with uh, very, a variety of things. Um, we do like a lot more white glove kind of like service and um, like uh, every single one of our customers we like have a Slack integration with where we're basically like handholding and working with them, you know, very closely. Um, so it's kind of like a different kind of offering, I'd say. We, we're trying to look a lot closer to like a central tech team that you would have mm. at a big studio. Um, versus like, um, you know, PlayFab's trying to be like the SaaS provider, which is like, you know, more off the shelf, like easy to set up, easy to use. It's a different persona um, type of uh, a studio. So what we've looked at uh, very closely is that like, we're, we're trying to look more similar. The, it, the, the analogy breaks down in, in many ways, but it's good in some ways. Um, we, we, we try to look more similar to like the Unreal of backends in that like Unity was sort of this more off the shelf engine and uh you know you could use the artist tools that it provided to create your game whereas unreal the expectation with unreal is that people were getting inside of the engine making like pretty heavy modifications to it our kind of thesis on the sort of cross-platform live service side is that in order to do like some of these really complex um you know platform problems particularly ones i mentioned uh, people need to make those modifications, and so our our core value proposition is that, like, for those big teams that really want to make those really, you know, to build those really big systems, like 
Prague was really like the only place you can do that without just like rolling your own, which is an option. And, and it's an option that makes sense for some people. But for, you know, some studios that don't want to basically like start from scratch and get a lot of value out, that's like kind of where we come in. And again, we're not trying to solve like the, hey, we're like working with like a hundred thousand studios or whatever. It's like, we're really focused on like this narrow group of like, it's all these like cross-platform live service games. And it's like, that's an ambitious effort. Uh, it's expensive. It You know, it's generally like a pretty big team. Even without us, it's still like a pretty you know, big effort. So that that's like kind of who we're focused on. Our goal over time is like, of course, we want to like democratize these services for uh, a broader range of people. But like what we had seen was that like the playfabs of the world, they would have like these these rocket ships that that sort of grew out of the the solution or sort of got to the point where it was no longer right. an appropriate solution. And what we want to do is sort of like work on the the sort of end state so that once we start going down the path of sort of democratizing these solutions, people are then like, oh, like I can actually like continue evolving my game with these services. I don't have to like rip it out and like start from scratch. Right, right. You like trying to grow up with the studio in a way. Um, That's right. Yeah. So we've sort of started at the <laughs> it, the most complicated sort of use cases in many cases. And then we're going to sort of go down and make it more generic. Got it. And so do you guys have, it sounds like you're, you said your target demographic is going to be like a double A, triple A studio with you know, live services cross-platform. What games have you, um, or what studios have you currently partnered with, and how do you actually like onboard and increase that pipeline from the BD side? Right. You know, one of the things I ask myself when it comes to kind of growth is like, you know, yeah. for you guys, you can only onboard a certain number of studios that you want to ally with and make sure that you do do right by them, right? And so, totally. You know, how does Pragma itself as an organization scale up like in headcount with the number of studios that it has? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. I think you know, when we got started originally, like I mentioned, we 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 worked with three studios to start: um, this Wonderstorm, uh, Mountaintop, and one more game. When we when we first uh, started going as like sort of our sort of design partners, and that was very much a very different relationship than um, the studios that we've brought on more recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those studios are you know venture back studios, uh, you know, spinning out of AAA games. They've you know worked with these uh, central tech teams in the past. They they know what they're doing when it comes to building these services, but again, like maybe like not wanting to start from scratch. Um, so that relationship was very much like sort of um, build. We'll build along with you, kind of thing. Um, you know, once we had much more of a mature product after like a couple of years of doing that, we started onboarding. Um, you know, we like started working with like uh, studios like Mountaintop and um, you know Free Range Games, which is a much bigger studio. Um, and that that one, they're working on the the Lord of the, the Lord of the Rings Moria game that's coming out in uh, June, it's like survival crafting game. Um, and then there's a bunch of other bigger studios that we are, aren't allowed to name yet uh, that we're working with as well. So we started like moving up the like chain of like starting off with like sort of the venture back studios, much more in a design partner relationship, moving more to like uh, like a real product, and then moving up to like working with teams that are like you know, in the beginning it was like 20, 30, 40 people to teams that are now like hundred plus people. Um, the, in terms of how we think about like scaling our own, uh, business, I mean, the benefit to us is that like, because we have a, an extensible, uh, platform, uh, studios themselves can go and actually build on top of our platform using like plugins, extensions, these custom services. Uh, the difficulty of like taking on, you know, hundreds of studios is that all of a sudden they have like all have different needs um, and, I bet. <laughs> uh, and, and those are, that becomes a major issue if the studio can't go in and actually write some of their own services. Mm. So it's like, yeah, no, you know, we could work on these services for 20 years and not be done with them. It's just, there's an unlimited set of like things that we could be building. And so like no solutions ever going to like meet a hundred percent of any studio's needs. That's just like not the reality of the industry that we work in. Unfortunately, I wish it was. Um, so then the question is sort of just like, what do you do when the solution doesn't meet the thing that you need? And the question is, you can wait, you can ask for a roadmap or you can build it yourself. Um, and what, and then the question becomes like, what does building yourself look like? Does building yourself mean like, I have to just rip out everything I've done and start it from scratch? Does does doing yourself mean like I can do it within the ecosystem that I've already chosen. And so those are like kind of the questions that we try to be like, okay, well, how can we give studios like a lot of value, but then like not block them from doing the thing that they're inevitably going to be missing. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that was exactly, I'm glad you, you brought that up because that was one of my questions. I was like, what if you guys have a feature that the game needs that's not available? You know, how do you let them make it 
so for themselves within your own platform, right? You know? Yeah, it's challenging. It's like, you know, in the perfect case, like 20 studios are all asking us for the same thing. And we're like, okay, that clearly needs to be the next thing we work on. Got it. Um, you Got know, it. It's usually not the case, though. It's like usually five studios want, you know, more, you know, uh, they want like a, a hook into our matchmaker in some way. You know, another five studios want some social feature like friends that you know, cross from friends and you know, it's like uh, we have to sort of prioritize that. But the, at the end of the day, our answer is like, you know, we're trying to do our best at addressing the most critical issues um, for the broadest number of studios. But if we don't, you also can, you know, solve your own problems as well. And I think that's comforting to the people that know, like the people that have done this in the past know that there isn't going to be a one size fits all solution. That's just not, um, you know, if you if someone believes that they're probably, they probably just haven't done this before and they just don't see the complexity. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's super true. It's true with products. Like a product for everybody is a product for no one. Game for everybody right. is a game for no one. Yeah. In the financial world, an Excel model to end all Excel models never works. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so it, it's it's definitely a challenge. I think it's really interesting to see kind of how you min-max and you decide, you know, it sounds like you, you know, take a lot of feedback from the studios that you're partnered with. But if I could just ask sort of like, you know, since you guys are really new, you know, how does you convince your first studio to come build on the Pragma backend when they could go with the safer game for app or play fab or anything else? Like what was yeah. that story like for you guys? Yeah, it's a good question. I think like, yeah, early on, like I said, like the folks that uh, could use play fab were not the appropriate people for us. It was actually the people that wanted to build it themselves and saying that like, play, we know that play fab's too restrictive uh. for uh, what we want to do. And so our approach was, Hey, like, you're going to go and try to hire a bunch of platform engineers. Like in the beginning, it was like, let us be your, that, that team for you. It'll be a lot cheaper for us to do it because we have VC money and, you know, we, we, we can build a, a business that uh, works for multiple studios. Mm -hmm. Obviously there are some trade-offs with that and that like, maybe you don't get the exact thing that you need, uh, you know, that, that you need worked on today. But it was like, we had a limited number of studios. Like I said, we only took three on the beginning um, and they had similar game types, so we tried to be pretty um, choosy about uh, you know the crossover of features between the three studios that we picked. Um, and and so I, I think it was just a value proposition for them, and that like, hey, I can go and hire a ten person team out, or I can hire Pragma for cheaper. Uh, and these are very difficult people to hire, just platform engineers in the space. So that that was how we got started, and then once we had a more mature solution, it was a different. That was a, a different conversation because we could actually show people like, oh, now we actually have like some services that you can take a look at. Got it. And then on the on the app, like you know, what what pricing models have you guys chosen to go with? You know, usage or fixed or a combination of of both? Yeah, it's it's a combination of both. Like we have basically like a fixed license model, which is like an annual or it's break, mostly broke, broken down to a monthly fee. Um, and then we have like a variable rate that's attached to concurrent users. Um, and then the concurrent user uh, is used because it doesn't deal with, it deals with sort of the spikes that can happen. Like if a streamer, you know, logs on and you get like, you know, 5 million people that hit your game, um, you're not charged for the entire month. So if you're, if you did like a Mao, obviously that would be like charging them for the entire month versus the CCU is just like snapshotting every single hour. And so like it deals with that burst and then it comes down. And so um, the, the, dif the difference between us and like sort of like an Unreal from a technology perspective is that we're a live service tool. Like Unreal is like much more of like an authoring tool, I'd say. And that it's like an engine to create something. Our, the pro the, not the problem, but our costs are higher because we have to operate uh, in many most cases the platform uh, globally. So there is a need for us to have some fixed fee to deal with sort of just like the day-to-day -day operations sure. of supporting and um, operating the platform. And then the variable rate is more just about like the upside of like, you know, participating in some growth of the game as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, I think those, um, the different types of incentive models and, and scale, in terms of scaling and sort of ratchet, ratchet tiers of fees are very interesting. I think, um, you know, you can have one of those situations where, you know, all of a sudden now game growth is a tax, right, on the studio. And so I think it's an interesting um, dynamic of having the backend player have a variable rate on users. If that makes yeah, sense. I mean, we've tried to make it 
like reasonable enough such that like it ratchets down over time and and all these things and you know like for us like if a studio is not successful like it really doesn't matter for taking you know some crazy fee it's just like we have to it has to be a reasonable amount and you know we're a startup where like it, it really matters like the most important thing to us is successful launches it's like it, it that that's what like it doesn't we're not trying to like monetize the perfect and have the perfect pricing model like we would adjust all that just to make sure that like we had the good relationship with the studio and make sure that it's like a win-win like it ha- it has to be that way or else like we can't be successful at this stage sure sure and then are, who would you say like right now like there are i think there are other new entrants to the back end space like a beamable right are would you consider them to be your competitor and how do you gain that competitive edge over a new you know, it sounds like you have a clear value proposition against like a play fab, right? But what about the new guys that are doing something similar maybe to you? Yeah, everybody's sort of approaching it a different way. There's so, uh, I'd say like we were the first ones that raised like serious venture money, I'd say. And then uh, there's been lots of new players that have launched, that have uh, subsequently raised on different sort of theses or just different focuses. Like there's like Beamable and Loot Locker, uh, Loot Locker has been much more of a content system uh, that uh, you know focuses on uh, uh, seems like more of like a mobile audience. Uh, Beamable is focused primarily in our minds on like Web three and um, and and sort of like like Unity games. They started as a as a mobile Unity uh, type of tool, um, whereas for us, we've specifically focused on primarily PC console like live service like games. That you know, our team comes out of like. Uh, like a half our team comes out of like Riot, and the half our team comes out of like uh, the, the 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 folks at PopCap that worked on Plants for Zombies and Bejeweled Blitz. Um, so we have like a little bit of mobile and PC console DNA, but like the still the vast majority of our team is sort of just like geared in the sort of more like kind of League of Legends type uh, game genre. So it's just, just a different genre. Like I think the Beamable guys came out of uh, the Star Trek mobile game, and it's just like. So I think all of that has uh, plays into the the focus. Like you're going to understand your the customers that you understand the most. Like you're going to serve the people that like that you've dealt the, with the problem the most for. So I think like our guys coming in from that background are going to deal with the problem differently than like folks that have dealt with it another way. So like we're we're glad to see you know more entrance in the space because we just think the 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 number one competitor for us is people building it themselves and <laughs> like the more attention that's yeah. brought to um like backends and like the 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 push to have studios like sort of offload that is the, the better it is for us yeah well it sounds like you guys have a fantastic product market fit um which is awesome and um i have like I could probably go on a thousand years and pestering you with questions, but I know that we're um, running up on we're running up on the hour, and so I wanted to say like you know thank you for joining today. I learned a ton, um, and hopefully our audience does too. And thanks for hopping on the podcast. Um, I know that you also are gonna be starting podcasting. You're kicking off a channel or something. What's that all about? Yeah, so um, we're starting a new podcast called the Gaming Founders Podcast. Uh, over the last kind of like two, three years, uh, one of the areas that I've been focused on is helping uh, game designers and folks raise money. Um, and uh, I've had literally hundreds of conversations about helping them navigate that whole space. Uh, so part of it was just like, I was getting so many questions on the space and wanting to just come up with a podcast that deals with sort of origin stories. How do people raise money? How do they hire their first people? Where do they find their co-founders from? Um, and I, I just did see a product out there that focused particularly on those origin stories. So uh, Kevin Zhang, who's at Upfront, and me, uh, we've already r- recorded a bunch of episodes and we'll be uh, yeah, launching that really soon. So super excited to, to tell those stories. Yeah, I think by the time this comes out, maybe uh, there'll be a couple on air so you can you can go and check it out. Um, if, if there are developers who are interested in listening to your podcast or interested in Pragma or investors that are interested in Pragma, you know, how can they get in touch? How can they, how can they listen to your, to your new content? Yeah, so the new podcast is uh, at pragma.gg slash gamingfounderspodcast. And then uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, just at Eden Chen. Um, or uh, our website's obviously pragma.gg. You can go there and, and, and find out uh, more there or contact us there as well. That's awesome. Okay, so on that note, uh, we'll be concluding. Big thank you, Eden, again for coming. Um, 
Thank you to our listeners and I'll be back in two weeks. And so until next time, friends, feel free to hit me up with um, any questions, comments, or concerns at alexandra.novak.co. Would love to hear your feedback. And with that, we're out. Au revoir. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.